The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday, January 13th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, new findings from the JWST may push the origins of the universe's earliest galaxies back millions of years. Plus, a huge rare earth deposit has been found in Sweden and an Instagram-based library run out of the home of a famous Mexico City artist with a bonus defense of owning books you haven't read. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. We knew that the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, would bring surprises, and it certainly has delivered thus far. The latest revelation, the first galaxies in our universe might have formed much earlier than we thought. This finding comes from announcements by astronomers at the 241st meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Seattle this past week. The JWST is much more sensitive than the Hubble Space Telescope, so it can essentially see much further back in time. For one study, currently undergoing peer review and presented at the conference, focusing on JWST's views of galaxies from when the universe was about 500 million to 2 billion years old, quoting Sky and Telescope, Previous studies, such as those done using the Hubble Space Telescope, had suggested that as we look back toward a younger universe, the stable rotating disks of today give way to more chaotic shapes, representative of the violent mergers that built up the first galaxies. Then again, those previous studies also had a hard time classifying the most distant ones, which looked like little more than smudges. That's where the JWST comes in. The longer wavelengths that JWST detects enable it to see farther back in time. JWST's images are also sharper than Hubble's and its sensitivity greater. The Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science Group, or SEERS, has used the new data, both images and spectra, to find 850 early galaxies, measure the distance to each one, and then tag its shape as disk, spheroid, or irregular. And since disks are thought to form only in serene environments, in which stars can settle into a spinning skirt instead of being thrown about, their prevalence in a universe only a few percent of its current age is a bit like seeing teens when expecting toddlers. End quote. Sears representative Jahan Cardeltelp clarified that seeing those disk galaxies wasn't a surprise, but seeing so many of them was. And as Wired notes, each galaxy takes a long time to develop its unique shape. Many sort of look like a sombrero with a bulgy inner part and a thinner disk of galaxies beyond that, while others only have the round, bulgy part. Astronomers previously thought few galaxies in the early universe had disks, but it turns out observers just couldn't see dim ones before JWST came on the scene. End quote. 
And going even further back in cosmic history, Haojing Yan from the University of Missouri said at an AAS press conference that his team detected 87 galaxies that could have been the very first to appear in the universe, about 200 to 400 million years after the Big Bang. This could, he says, mean we need to revise our prior understanding of galaxy formation. Now, for one, it would place the earliest galaxies a few hundred million years earlier than the ones scientists currently know to be the earliest. If the dating holds up to confirmation, at the moment, they're just candidate galaxies. But they are, in Jan's words, quote, the first large sample of candidate galaxies beyond the reach of the Hubble Space Telescope, end quote. And quoting Wired, dating a galaxy can be a challenging matter. It involves measuring its redshift, how much the light it emits is stretched toward longer red wavelengths, which tells astronomers how fast the galaxy is moving away from us in the quickly expanding universe. That, in turn, tells astronomers the galaxy's distance from Earth, or more exactly, the distance that the photons from its stars had to travel at the speed of light before reaching a space telescope near the Earth, like JWST. Light from stars in the most distant galaxy in this collection may have been emitted 13.6 billion years ago, likely fairly soon after the young galaxy came together. These newly estimated distances will have to be confirmed with spectra, which means measuring the light the galaxies emit across the electromagnetic spectrum and pinpointing its unique signatures. Still, Jan expects many of them to be correctly dated to the early days of the cosmos. I'll bet $20 and a tall beer that the success rate will be higher than 50%, he said, end quote. Jan may have a celebratory tall beer even if his bet doesn't quite hold up, because as Sky and Telescope said, quote, even if only half of Jan's selection turn out to be nearby galaxies masquerading as distant ones, the latter number would still be unexpectedly large, end quote. And one possibility is that some of these galaxies are closer than expected, which would mean they aren't quite so old. So again, much confirmation to come, but here's how Jan's team came to their initial estimates. Quoting again from Wired, Jan's team imaged these galaxies with JWST's NERCAM at six near-infrared wavelengths. To estimate their distances, the astronomers used a standard dropout technique. Hydrogen gas surrounding galaxies absorbs light at a particular wavelength, so the wavelengths at which an object can or can't be seen puts a limit on how far away it is likely to be. These 87 candidate galaxies mostly look like blobs that can only be detected in the longer, and therefore redder, near-infrared wavelengths detectable by NERCAM, which could mean they're very distant and therefore very old." End quote. Whether this particular sample yields 50% confirmed earliest galaxies in the universe or not, it's incredibly exciting how much more we are able to see with JWST. As Space.com explains it with regards to this particular study, quote, objects at high redshifts, 11 and above, can be detected only by infrared light, which is why JWST was crucial in observing these 87 galaxies. By comparison, the Hubble Space Telescope sees only from ultraviolet to near-infrared light, which is why astronomers previously thought there were very few galaxies beyond redshift 11, end quote. 
Every astronomer speaking at the AAS press conference noted how much more there is to study and to think about. JWST is bringing to light possibilities that upend some of our previous findings about the universe and already beginning to unravel some of those bigger questions about the origins of the universe. As Jan put it, quote, I believe this discovery is just the tip of the iceberg. After this, I anticipate that other teams of astronomers will find similar results elsewhere in the vast reaches of space as JWST continues to provide us with a new view of the deepest parts of our universe. End quote. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000. If you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. The largest deposit of rare earth minerals in Europe has been found in Sweden, opening the door for a much-needed boost to the EU's green transition plans. Currently, no rare earths are mined anywhere in Europe, and in 2021, 98% of rare earths used in the EU were imported from China, according to the BBC. So this find of over a million tons of rare earth in Sweden's Lapland province has the potential to be a game-changer. Quoting the Associated Press, Sweden's iron ore miner, LKAB, said Thursday it has identified significant deposits in Lapland of rare earth elements that are essential for the manufacture of smartphones, electric vehicles, and wind turbines. The government-owned company that mines iron ore at Kiruna, almost a thousand kilometers north of Stockholm, said there are more than a million tons of rare earth oxides, end quote. While a million tons is a huge amount, the BBC notes that that is merely a fraction of the world's overall 120 million ton reserves. 
And for a refresher on rare earths, here's the Washington Post. Quote, they are a group of 17 chemical elements composed of scandium, yttrium, and lanthanides, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. But mining rare earth minerals is complex, as supply is not concentrated in one location. Mining them also affects the environment, since their ores can be laced with radioactive materials such as thorium and uranium. Refining the minerals can generate toxic and radioactive waste, which poses environmental and health risks if not properly disposed of. China hosts the majority of the world's reserve of rare earth minerals and is the world's leading supplier. The United States was the largest producer several decades ago. While Brazil and Vietnam have significant reserves, they lag far behind in mining them. End quote. In addition to smartphones, EVs, and wind turbines, rare earths are also used in the manufacture of TVs, computers, lighting, and a slew of military equipment, like night vision tech, jets and armored vehicle alloys, and missile guidance systems. And while, per the Post, some companies have started developing motors for EVs that don't require rare earths, our everyday technologies writ large are highly dependent on them, especially tech that would be considered part of the green transition, again, like EVs and wind turbines. And as such, demand for rare earths is expected to increase fivefold by 2030, according to the BBC and a 2022 report by the European Commission. Quoting the Associated Press, Internal Market Commissioner Thierry Breton has warned that the EU's ambition to become the first climate-neutral continent is at risk without a secure and sustainable access to raw materials. Our twin green and digital transition will live or die through the functioning of our supply chains, he said. Take China, with its quasi-monopoly on rare earths and permanent magnets, and prices rising by 50 to 90% in the past year alone. Supply of raw materials has become a real geopolitical tool. And continuing from the Associated Press, the EU is also eager to learn from the past and reduce one-sided dependencies, like the one it developed on Russia for oil and gas, only starting to cut ties recently after the war in Ukraine started with Moscow's full-scale invasion on February 24th. End quote. Sweden's Minister for Energy, Business, and Industry, Ebba Bush, said in a press conference Thursday, quote, Electrification, the EU's self-sufficiency, and independence from Russia and China will begin in the mine. We need to strengthen industrial value chains in Europe and create real opportunities for the electrification of our societies. Politics must give the industry the conditions to switch to green and fossil-free production. Here, the Swedish mining industry has a lot to offer. The need for minerals to carry out the transition is great. End quote. Bush also called the discovery a gold mine, and it's certainly welcome news for Europe given the aforementioned intersecting pressures. And according to Interesting Engineering and a report from the iron ore miner LKAB, this discovery would be sufficient to meet a large part of the EU's future demand. However, the fruits of the discovery are still far off. LKAB has already started to prepare a drift in the existing mine towards the new deposit, and CEO Jan Mostrom said, quote, we're already investing heavily to move forward, and we expect that it will take several years to investigate the deposit and the conditions for profitably and sustainably mining it. We are humbled by the challenges surrounding land use and the impacts that exist to develop this into a mine, and that will need to be analyzed to see how to avoid, minimize, and compensate for it. Only then can we proceed with an environmental review application and apply for a permit." 
end quote. All told, they're looking at 10 to 15 years before mining will truly begin and raw materials will begin being delivered to the market. So potentially great news for Europe, but not an immediate answer to present challenges. Those of you who follow me on Twitter may have seen my tiny complaint this morning about my local library branch having been closed for the better part of the past three years and how it won't reopen from renovations until later this fall. That complaint was really a plug of a Book Riot article I read this morning by Connie Pan, whose local library branch has also been closed for renovations for quite some time. And Pan's article was largely about how, rather than driving four extra miles to the nearest other library branch, just as I have mostly refused to walk the 20 extra minutes to other nearby library branches, she opted to peruse her own personal library, using the branch closure as an opportunity to actually read the huge amount of unread books that she's collected over the years. Now, debates abound over whether you should read every book you own. There seems to be a kind of stereotype of the faux intellectual who owns dozens or hundreds of books that they've never read. You know, minimalist and budgeting recommendations always come for people who purchase new books before having finished the last ones they bought. But budgeting aside, there are many arguments for owning a personal library stocked with books you haven't read. There's even a word for it in Japanese, tsondoku. According to Kevin Dickinson at Big Think, quote, tsondoku is the Japanese word for the stacks of books you've purchased but haven't read. Its morphology combines sundoku, letting things pile up, and dukoshu, reading books. The word originated in the late 19th century as a satirical jab at teachers who owned books but didn't read them. But today, the word carries no stigma in Japanese culture. It also differs from bibliomania, which is the obsessive collecting of books for the sake of the collection, not their eventual reading. End quote. But if you want something a bit more punk, statistician Nassim Nicholas Taleb referred to unread books that one owns as an anti-library. Taleb wrote in his book The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable, quote, Red books are far less valuable than unread ones. Your library should contain as much of what you do not know as your financial means, mortgage rates, and the currently tight real estate market allows you to put there. You will accumulate more knowledge and more books as you grow older, and the growing number of unread books on the shelves will look at you menacingly. Indeed, the more you know, the larger the rows of unread books, end quote. Speaking on author Umberto Eco's enormous collection of 30,000 books, Taleb noted, as summarized by Dickinson, quote, Eco's library wasn't voluminous because he had read so much. It was voluminous because he desired to read so much more, end quote. And quoting further from Dickinson, The anti-library's value stems from how it challenges our self-estimation by providing a constant niggling reminder of all we don't know. These shelves of unexplored ideas propel us to continue reading, continue learning, and never be comfortable that we know enough. Jessica Stillman calls this realization intellectual humility. In her article, Jessica Stillman ponders whether the anti-library acts as a counter to the Dunning-Kruger effect, a cognitive bias that leads ignorant people to assume their knowledge or abilities are more proficient than they truly are. 
Since people are not prone to enjoying reminders of their ignorance, their unread books push them toward, if not mastery, then at least a ever-expanding understanding of competence. All those books you haven't read are indeed a sign of your ignorance, but if you know how ignorant you are, you're way ahead of the vast majority of other people, Stillman writes, end quote. I do love that idea of being confronted by my own ignorance. I mean, being confronted by my own ignorance by seeing the spines of unread books lining the walls of my apartment is a much more pleasant experience than being confronted by my own ignorance in the midst of a conversation or a professional failure. And more so than that, perhaps cynical take, I just love how unread books are reminders of topics I'm curious about, and which one day, when I have a moment, I'll get to sit down and learn more about. Having books on a wide variety of topics also functions as a great research tool. I'm constantly pulling books off my shelves for this podcast when a news story sparks a memory of an apt quote or related finding that I read a while back. Now, of course, all of that said, not everyone has the money, the space, or the time to collect a lot of books. And that is where libraries come in. Public libraries, little free libraries, online libraries like the Internet Archive, they come in many forms and fashions. And sometimes, people with Umberto Eco-level personal libraries turn their own vast personal collections into public resources— that's the case with Mexican artist Pedro Reyes, who has launched an Instagram account that lends out books directly from his sprawling home collection. Reyes, with the assistance of his librarian and Instagram manager, Carolina Peralta, posts curated selections of books on the account's Laquilo Biblioteca. Literary Hub's Natalie Bauer notes that Laquilo means scribe in Nahuatl, the indigenous Aztec language spoken in central Mexico. Interested lenders from the Laquilo Biblioteca need only send a DM over Instagram to set up a time to pick up their book from Reyes's studio home. Quoting Literary Hub, Reyes said his own project is based on a principle which Reyes calls Mikosa es tu cosa. My thing is your thing, a play on words of the ubiquitous adage, mi casa es tu casa. Reyes sees libraries as a representation of total anarchy, as institutions that have never been affiliated with a chain of value-added production, and that is precisely why, according to Reyes, as many resources as possible need to be concentrated into an online ecosystem of mi cosa es tu cosa, end quote. While the trust Reyes puts into strangers on Instagram, especially as a famous artist welcoming people into his home, which Reyes says he isn't worried about because, quote, internet shaming is a very powerful phenomenon, end quote, the idea of offering up his things to others is kind of the basis of modern libraries. Quoting again from LitHub, in colonial times in the United States, as it became vogue to buy and own printed books, subscription libraries, like Benjamin Franklin's library company in Philadelphia, sprung up, especially in places where people had a hard time getting their hands on them. These subscription models were a way to pool resources amongst usually white male book aficionados. The Neighborhood Lending Library, a more standard institution that many Americans have come to love, is a relatively recent concept. It didn't catch on until the late 19th century, when a whole boatload of them were financed and built around the world by robber baron Andrew Carnegie. 
Carnegie's most enduring personal philanthropy project began in large part because of the impact having access to books through private and subscription libraries had on him as a working-class boy. Through the lens of his own rags-to-riches origin story, Carnegie believed that putting books in the hands of the poor and working class was akin to helping the poor help themselves. End quote. Especially with how widespread little free libraries have become over the years, as well as community fridges and other mutual aid resources during the pandemic, I'm curious to see how more projects like Reyes and Peralta's might spring up as people continue thinking outside the box in how we share resources and find community and create things for ourselves. You know, I hope very much that current threats to public libraries ease up, because not only are they the only source of books for so many people, but they're also repositories of so many other resources, from internet access to AV equipment, tax assistance, and so much more. But for communities that do lose their public libraries, even temporarily, it'd be cool to see more initiatives like this one take off. All right, well, that is going to be it for me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.